0: Me and I went to Jordan last month. We were indoctrinated, you might say, by our Jordanian guide about all the cultural details of uh, Jordan. And one of which I was aware of, but not aware of to the extent to which we discovered the, uh, the way that women are viewed and treated over in that part of the world. The laws that govern marriage, that uh, govern divorce, that govern inheritance as far as a brother getting how much, a sister getting how much, uh, owning property, are very heavily skewed in the favor of a man. And they didn't say this, but I, I picked up, and so did most of the women <laughs> that were in on our tour, that the whole sense of the rationale behind this kind of a uh, lawmaking and attitude in the society is one such that men were just a cut above women. You get a little closer to our culture, um, I know that it's true down in Mexico, and certainly here in Texas, as we have many uh, Hispanics who have the same kind of a a culture of the machismo attitude, of the man of the house, and he rules with an iron fist and this kind of thing. And very often in Christian circles here in the United States, we'll also have the erroneous thinking that because of some skewed doctrine is taught incorrectly from the Bible, that a wife is to submit to her husband who um, treats her like a doormat, and that is true submission. I think it would really do us well today to look at what the Bible says is not a far-reaching chauvinism from the East and not a far-reaching liberalism from here in the West, but where the Bible gives us the balance between these two. In Proverbs chapter 31, there are three things we're told under which the earth trembles. Just look at the screen. We're told one of which is a servant who becomes king, a fool who is full of food, and an unloved woman who is married. It's something that shakes the foundation of the earth, we're told, the injustice of a married woman who has a husband who does not love her, particularly as the Bible says a husband should love his wife. I know that there are many of you ladies married here today, perhaps married before or looking towards marriage, but particularly those of you today whom I want to talk about are either in marriage or uh, anything to do with the, the future of a marriage in your life, whether you are or are going to be, if you ever get into the context of a husband that is not living according to the Word of God, how does the Bible say that you are to respond to that? Let's look together in First Peter chapter 3 at probably one of the most difficult passages in the culture in which we live, and it fits very easily the theme of the book we've called Faith in Times Like These. It was true of Peter's culture, and it's also true of our culture, that uh, the biblical role of a wife is looked down on as the June Cleaver in dignity, and that anyone who would succumb to that kind of a role is a traditionalist, is a chauvinist, is a patriarchal... uh, well, I've already used the word chauvinist, but it works again. That kind of a scenario is held up to women who try at all to conform to what the Scripture says is God's design for her in her marriage. And before we get into the text of 1 Peter 3, I want to remind us of where we've been and a little bit of where we're going in the book by looking at just a simple little chart of the big idea. And there's really three themes in this whole book of 1 Peter. And the first part talks about salvation. The second part talks about submission. The third part talks about suffering. Uh, We started the part about submission last week as we looked at at the context of submitting to government, submitting to our employer. But before we get into this, I want to, again, as we look at these three themes, notice how one flows right into the other. Because it is only as a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. It is only as a person is born again or has the Holy Spirit within them, a person who has, the first part, salvation, that they can ever submit themselves to someone else because naturally we are of the, the, uh, the ilk to be independent rather than to be submissive. It is only through a person who is saved who has the Holy Spirit within them, to give them the strength to submit to anybody. And it is only when we have that attitude of submitting ourselves to the will of God that suffering then becomes something that we can live through and deal with. And this is what Peter teaches us in the book, particularly as we we we'll look later at chapter 5. He says that after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you suffering may very well be God's will for you in this life. It certainly was for the, for the Lord Jesus, as we saw, He could not go to the cross without suffering. In fact, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul says that all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So in the culture in which we live, how can we live out our faith in times like these, but particularly now, how can a woman in a culture that says, that is not a real woman, live out what the Bible says is her role as a wife. Let's look chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. I want you to notice the very... First part of the verse, in the same way, Peter says, in the same way. What does that force us to do? It forces us to go back and to, and to ask and answer the question, in the same way as what? All right, in the same way as what? So let's do that. Again, a simple little summary will suffice. Submission in First Peter is not something that's just done, uh, some, just something that wives are to do. It's, it's all over the place in four major areas. In fact, the word is used these four times in the sense of a command. The word itself, submit, means to rank under. It has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with authority. It's a very important distinction. It has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with authority. And it makes sense as you plug it in to the various aspects of which Peter says we are to submit. The first part we saw last week, we are to submit to the government. Is the government any better than me because I submit to it? No. It's simply a matter of authority. Same with masters, or in our context, employees, and then we'll talk about this red section of Christ in just a second. Same with uh, toward husbands, same toward elders in the church. But in the center there, we have the submission not to, but rather of Christ. If you remember last week, the whole motivation and example for which we submit to the government, submit to our employers, is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself submitted to unjust human authority. Why did He do it? Why did Jesus submit? Well, it's the exact same reason that, if you remember last week, that we submit to our government, the reason we submit to our employers. You remember last week we said the reason that we do what's right as far as the government In verse 13 it says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. You're not doing it for them, you're doing it for the Lord, for the sake of the Lord. Why should we submit to our bosses, remember last week? Um, If for the sake of conscience toward God, verse 19. Why did the Lord Jesus submit, like we looked at last week? We're told at the very end, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So the context in which we're heading into chapter 3 is this. That just as, in the same way that we submit to an ungodly government as to the Lord, the same reason we w- would submit to an ungodly boss as unto the Lord, the same reason the Lord Jesus submitted to an ungodly authority did it as unto the Lord, so we're told, chapter 3, verse 1, the very next thing is told, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to And who is it? Ungodly authority to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. I hope that you see here, in the context of 1 Peter, Peter is not picking on women. Uh, The Holy Spirit inspired this, and believe me, God is not a chauvinist, or he never would have created woman. He is, create, he is telling us our roles as far as authority, not equality. Submission is something that we all do, men and women alike. So why does our culture uh, have such a problem with the, the submission of wives? Why does our culture have such a problem, incidentally, also with submission, submission to church? Because those things, there's really no bad ramifications. We'll submit to the government because if we don't they'll punish us. We'll submit to our boss, because if we don't, they'll fire us. Again, it's totally selfish motivation, not godly motivation. But Peter also holds up the husband and the church in the same kind of ought-to motivation as unto the Lord. Martin Luther called marriage the school of character. And uh, I think that that's, that's a great little title for marriage because marriage is that which we learn to die to self more than any other human relationships that we have. And before we continue, we're going to spend a little time here on verse 1 as we already have, but before we continue, I want you to glance down real quick at verse 7. We don't have it on the screen or in your bulletin, but if you have a Bible, look down at verse 7 at a peak at next week. When we talk about husbands. And about in the middle of the verse, Peter says that the the, uh, husband is to remember, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir. The the wife is a fellow heir. In other words, she is equal in the image of God. And this is something that, again, is usually so ripped out of its context that it's not kept in the context in which it is written. And ultimately, the context of any passage is the Bible itself. If you were to read in Genesis, or if you've read Genesis, you probably remember Adam and Eve, when they were created. They were created, we were told, male and female, both in the image of God. Okay? Equality. And yet, while there was an equality of of essence, you might say, they're both in in the image of God, there was a distinction in function. It's very easy to see this physically. Okay, a different function physically, particularly as we're talking about the context of marriage. When a, in the context of marriage, the physical act, obviously, male and female, have two different roles in that act. And when that, that type of physical relationship is changed, and a man, you might say, uh, a man tries to portray the physical, the physical aspect of a woman, okay, or a woman, the physical aspect of a man, the Bible calls that perversion. The same is actually true in the context of relationships. Because in, in the context of a marriage relationship, just as, it, as the roles are not interchangeable physically, the roles are also not interchangeable relationally. That God has given specific roles for the specific people. And one thing I'd like to point out as well, in verse 1, it's not saying women submit to men. This is not uh, the Middle Eastern kind of mentality of chauvinism. It says wives to husbands, or a wife to a husband. It's not women to men. And a great example of this is that uh, I, as a Christian man, am to submit to a woman if she is an authority over me, either as my employer or in a government position. I, as a Christian man, am to submit to that woman because she is my authority in those realms. So you see, it's not an issue of equality, it's simply an issue of authority. So when we get into the issue of the the marriage, it's really the same thing, except the role here is determined by sex, as is the role of church leaders as well. Peter describes a scenario here that is not all that uncommon today, and that is you have a woman who has placed her faith in Jesus Christ married to a man who is not a Christian. How is she to affect this man for the Lord Jesus? It's a natural question. How is she going to affect him for the Lord Jesus? Or a little broader principle might be, if you, even if you have a believing husband who doesn't walk with the Lord Jesus, who doesn't obey the word of God, how are you to affect his behavior? Peter tells us, first of all, how you're not to, and then he tells, tells us how you are to. And the first, if you have the old King James, you need to take a permanent marker and, and mark out the word there that says conversation, because that is not at all the way it works. The King James translates it something like, uh, if they are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the conversation of their wives, which totally contradicts what this verse is truly teaching. Uh, What the verse says, and this is an excellent translation, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, not by the conversation, by the behavior. And if you look at the detail, the the, the verse bears it out. If the husband is disobedient to the word, it's very definite, speaking of the Bible. They may be one without a word, very indefinite. It's speaking of the words of the wife. In other words, Peter's saying, if you want to win your husband for Jesus Christ, it's not by your talk. It's by your walk. It's by your behavior. And he a little more clearly defines what that behavior is in verse 2, where he says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. True story. There's, every time I breathe, I squeak. I'm going to pull my shirt out a little. Uh, there is a true story of a lady that goes into... Uh, this counseling office for some encouragement on her marriage. Her marriage was falling apart. She was struggling with her husband who was not a believer. She didn't know how to handle the situation. And so she says, tell me what to do. And this guy says, you know, they talk a little bit about it. And he turns to 1 Peter 3 and he says, look, the Bible says that you are to go home and you are to win your husband without a word. Without a word? You mean I'm not to talk to him about spiritual things? Without a word. A word. Well, I don't know if I can do that. Well, give it a try. And so for a week, she gives it a try. She goes back the next week, says, how'd it go? Well, I lasted for about half an hour, and then I just cut into it. Says, well, next week, same assignment. Comes back the next week, well, how'd it go? Well, it did pretty, great, pretty well for about three days, but then it got more than I could handle, and I just let him have it. And so the counselor asks, is there anything in particular that, uh, the, that your husband enjoys that you could prepare for him? Oh, yes, she said. He likes this smelly stew. It takes all day long to cook this thing. It reeks. It takes two weeks to get the stench out of the house. She says, I hate this stew. The counselor says, all right. I've got an assignment for you. I want you to make this do. She says, oh, well, I don't know if I can do it. She goes home, and it took her about three or four days to muster up enough courage to finally get the thing started. When she did get it started, she almost threw it out three or four times. This is how much she hates it. And she was, she was so struggling with this that she got down on her knees and she prayed, oh, Lord, you can help me get through this. You can help me do this. And then she gets up and she sticks in the cotton. (laughs) And the husband comes home. And I kid you not, these were his words. He comes home, he opens the door. He takes one whiff of what's going on in this house. And this unbelieving man asks, My God! what What happened to that woman? And not only has this man since come to know the Lord Jesus Christ but they also share one of the most prominent Bible-teaching ministries in Dallas. And whenever this woman brings another woman to the Lord Jesus in faith, the first thing she does in the follow-up program is say, all right, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And let me share with you what I've learned. Incidentally, ladies, you are not designed by God to have to go through this by yourself. If you're to read in Titus chapter 2, you will, you will see that exactly what this, this woman that I just told you about did, you are to do, or you are to have done to you. And that is, the older women, we're told, are to be reverent in their behavior, uh, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, dot, 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 being submissive, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. You see, you're not designed to have to go through this by yourself. And incidentally, if you have been married for a while and you have already been implementing this into your life, your obligation also is to have a young woman through whom and for for whom you share these things, that you may teach them as well how to do what you have learned how to do. Titus chapter 2, very clear. So how do I do that? How do I get hooked up with that? In your bulletin you've got Holly Branch's name and phone number. She heads up the women's ministry. She can get you plugged in to either a woman to talk to or a woman to talk to you about these kind of issues. There's two temptations for a wife who wants her husband to change, primarily two. And Peter addresses them both here in this chapter. The two temptations are to either nag him into doing what's right. Okay? That is, you go to a Bible study and you come home and you cram the Bible down your husband's throat. And Peter says, Peter goes against that when he says, without a word. The other temptation is then, well, if I can't tell him without a word, with words, I'll tell him without words. And there's the cold shoulder attitude that happens. Okay, the distancing, the wall that goes up emotionally. Peter also says that that is not right. That is not being a submissive, a submissive attitude because he defines it as, as they observe, observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The word chaste is really, literally the word pure. It comes from the idea of a pure mind or, or from the word holy. It means you have a pure motive in doing this. You're not, you're not doing it on the outside, but on the inside, You know, your hand is raised and rebellion. But it is sincere because you're not doing it for this man, you're doing it as unto the Lord and for the Lord's glory. So at what point then does the man hear the gospel? You know, if it's supposed to be without a word, at what point then does the man hear the gospel? Well, Peter doesn't finish here in in chapter 3 with just that, but he goes on And we don't have the verse, but if you were to glance down at verse 15, you'd see, Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. Where have we seen that before? We've seen that before in the uh, the role of the wife here. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, you're to live the Lord Jesus Christ before him until he asks you, what's wrong with that woman? And at that point, the scripture gives you the right to say, let me tell you why I've changed. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, etc." I want to show you a point that this context brings out that very often is not brought out in the teaching on the wife, and that is this, that your actions of submission as a wife mirror the submission of Jesus. Have you ever noticed when you hear a sermon about the role of the husband and the wife, it's almost always the husband that is compared to Jesus Christ? Uh, Because particularly the husbands are told, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, the Bible compares them. But the Bible also compares the wife to Jesus because in this context you have five verses describing the submission of Jesus Christ to ungodly authority. He does it as unto the Lord. The very next thing that is said, chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way. So ladies, to understand your actions of submission mirror the submission of Jesus Christ. You know there's not one of us who would be sitting here having faith in Jesus Christ if Jesus hadn't willingly submitted himself to his authority, God the Father. Did Jesus want to do that? Did Jesus want to go to the cross? If you've read in the Gospels, you see him kneeling and praying three different times and asking, may this cup be taken away from me. But then, how does he qualify that? Not my will, but yours. Was Jesus any less God because he submitted to the Father? No. If you read Philippians 2, you see that he did not consider equality with God things to be grasped. In other words, he didn't pull rank. He was, in essence, God, and yet he decided to empty himself, to submit. And I've often wondered why the Lord would, why the Holy Spirit would have in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, this example of a Christian woman submitting to an unbeliever. Why would you have that kind of a scenario? And I think it's a logic from uh, the, the less of the greater, you might say. Because if a woman who is married to an unbeliever is told to submit to that unbeliever, then what must be the responsibility of a Christian woman who is married to a Christian man? How much more so then? should there be the heart to do, to do what is right. If you'll remember last week, submission, doesn't, submission has qualifications. Um, to government, to bosses, and to husbands, and to church. You do not submit to human authority if that human authority requires you to sin. So ladies, submission to husbands does not mean That if he says sin, you sin. That is not biblical submission. Submission is not being abused. That is not biblical submission. Submission does not mean that you um, cannot communicate your needs. That's not what without a word means. Without a word is speaking of spiritual issues. Not communicating your needs. you will be held responsible not for your husband's poor decisions, but for how you and the authority that God has placed you under responded under God. This passage is not addressed to husbands. In fact, I almost wish you guys hadn't shown up today. Because this is not discussing your rights. This does not talk about the right of the husband. Nowhere in the Bible will you see it said, Husbands, you have the right for your wife to submit to you. Mm-mm. But what you do see is it say, Wives, here is your responsibility. The Bible talks in terms of responsibility hardly ever, and I can't, I, I don't want to say never cause I, because I can be wrong, but hardly ever does it talk in terms of rights. All the time it talks in terms of responsibility. Submission is not a husband's right. It is a wife's responsibility to choose for herself to do that under God. Now Peter illustrates this a little bit, what this behavior is to look like even further. Verse 3 and verse 4, he says, "...and let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses." but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Uh, Brian and I went to Six Flags one time uh, and our families, we we all went. And it must have been Maw Kettle Day or something because there was a religious group there who took this verse in such a way that women can't look pretty. And so they intentionally looked extremely plain. The thought being that they're fulfilling the verse that says uh, you don't braid the hair, you don't wear gold jewelry. But the problem I've never understood here is why they don't take it further and uh, why they don't wear any clothes because uh, that's what the verse is teaching. In fact, the original word here is not the word for dress in a feminine sense. It simply means garment, the same word was we used of Jesus, Jesus' garment. So if you say you can't braid or you can't wear gold jewelry, you also say you can't wear clothes. That's not at all what Peter's teaching. He's not teaching prohibition. He's teaching priority. He's saying your priority is not to be the outside beauty. Your priority is to be the inside beauty. That is what is of great worth in God's sight. The word that he uses here for a gentle and quiet spirit, the word gentle is only used four times in the New Testament, three times from the lips of Jesus, two times describing himself, where Jesus himself says, I am gentle and humble of heart. So to be like this is to be like Jesus. The word has in the idea of not being pushy, demanding your own way, but rather you're gentle. Quiet spirit. That doesn't mean keep your mouth shut. Quiet is the word for peaceful. You think of a quiet nature setting. That's the idea. It's peaceful. You think of a, of a peaceful setting. So it doesn't mean you don't talk. It means there is peace in your attitude. So you've got a, not a pushy, but rather peaceful. That's the kind of a spirit that is of great worth in God's sight. And so another principle just leaps from the passage here. And that is that your attitude of submission as a wife is of incredible worth to God. In fact, I love the way the NIV translates it. It's of great worth in God's sight. Because the word great worth, or the word precious, is literally the word expensive. And what an outstanding contrast Peter gives in the culture of his day and also our day that with that word Expensive. Because, what will ladies do often in our day but go to Neiman's or go to Foley's or go to Dillard's and they'll spend hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars to dress up the outside where the outside looks great? They are expensive on the outside. But what God says is what is expensive to Him or what is valuable, what is of great worth in His sight, is the inside, is that, that tender, that, that gentle, and quiet spirit is of great worth in God's sight. And sometimes, ladies, that's absolutely all you're going to have to hang on to, is knowing that the way you're responding is of great worth in the sight of God. You know, that's all Jesus had to hang on to at that point. Your culture is going to look at you and they're going to shake their head and go, you unfulfilled poor little thing. And yet you're going to know in spite of their rejection of you, and in spite even those of you who have husbands that don't honor you, even in spite of that, you can come to this text and you can cling to verse 4 and know that the way that you are acting is precious, is expensive in the sight of God. The opposite of that has the opposite effect. If the gentle and quiet spirit is what draws a man in, both to the wife and to the Lord, what does a spirit that is not like that do? Just ask a guy who was married to about a thousand women. Solomon. And what does Solomon tell us? In the Proverbs, he says, It's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. You think he was upset when he wrote that? (laughs) He was. In fact, I didn't put it on here, but that verse is in the Proverbs twice, almost identical, different places. Also, Proverbs 14, though, I'd like you to focus a little more on the positive side. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish one tears it down with her own hands. But they're focused on the positive. Yeah, we know you can tear it down with your own hands, but what else can you do? If you're a wise woman, you can build it. You can build your house. And how do you do that? Peter tells us. It may be a process that takes time, maybe years, maybe a lifetime. But is it worth it? Sure it is. It's worth it, one, because God says, that is precious in my sight, and I will honor that. But it's also worth it, because we're told that that kind of behavior cannot be ignored, even by an unbelieving husband. And now he gives us an illustration that's helpful. In verse 5 and 6, Peter says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear." This is the verse that makes my knees quake. And if you saw the little cartoon in the bulletin, it makes me terrified to open my mailbox about Tuesday. Because you can couch the word submit in nice little definitions like, oh, it means to be respectful. Oh, it means to be kind. And it does. But when the rubber hits the road, how does the Holy Spirit of God, not me, but how does the Holy Spirit of God define a submissive wife, by the illustration of Sarah who, quote, obeyed Abraham. Boy, that goes against the grain, doesn't it? We can't erase that word, ladies. And I even looked it up in the original language. You know what it means in the original language? Same thing it means in the English. Calling him Lord. That requires a little explanation, though you're not calling him God. Notice it's a lowercase l. It's referring to authority. The word Lord comes from a word that comes from the word for authority. And that's all it is. In what context did Sarah call Abraham Lord or essentially authority? Well, if you were to flip back to Genesis 18, and you don't, you don't have to, but you can just listen, that's the context in which it happened. And let me read you the story real quick because it's very instructive for us. The context here is where God tells Abraham, you're going to have a baby. You and Sarah are going to have a baby even though you're way past childbearing age. And so let me pick up the story. Genesis 18, around verse 10. God said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing, and Sarah laughed to herself, saying... After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return. At this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Only the Holy Spirit of God could pick up an illustration like that, from that context, and pull it here into 1 Peter 3 to describe a woman who was holy. What is going on here that she is called a holy woman? I think the emphasis is that even though Sarah at this point didn't believe what God said, she was at that moment in unbelief, yet it was so characteristic of her personality To be in subjection to Abraham, that even when she was in unbelief, she calls him Lord, or authority. And notice, he wasn't around. He was outside the tent talking to God. She wasn't doing it to impress anybody. It was such a characteristic of her personality. Even in a moment of unbelief, she called him that. Which is proof positive that it must be an attitude of the heart, and not something that's done just publicly to show. One of the things I think that is so so much of a struggle for ladies, and I know it is for me when I must submit to a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit, when it's crazy to go 30 down Elm Street. But is it my prerogative to decide that? No. That's my authority's prerogative. Even though I don't like it, even though it's really not very practical, even though in my expertise I know that about every speed limit ought to be about 10 miles an hour faster. I am still to submit to that. When the boss gives you a pile of work and you were hoping to get off a little early, what do you do? It's the same word as what comes into the domestic area. So ladies, you may have expertise over your husband in an area, and if he's smart, he'll listen to you. But if he doesn't do it, how are you to respond? Are you to fly off the handle? Is that a gentle and quiet spirit? are you to say, look, this is my area of expertise, guy. Let's do it this way. Is that a gentle and quiet spirit? No. You are to take that to the Lord and nag God with it. That's biblical. To nag God about your husband is biblical it's called prayer. And that's okay. But as far as the husband is concerned, without a word. And that's hard. But he'll make stupid decisions. Yeah. If I don't say this to him, it's going to confirm his error and he'll never change. Well, that I wouldn't say yeah to. Because if you really believe what the Bible says, that God can work in the heart of your husband, apart from you. Really, he can. Apart from you. Apart from your words. But God can work through your attitude. Do you really believe that? Because that's what Peter teaches. Do you believe God can work in the heart of your husband in spite, of, without having anything to do with you? Do you think he can? If you really believe that he can, then you need to apply what this passage says and to begin to discover in your life The joy of fulfillment, as you as a wife were intended to enjoy. Ruth Graham once said something, I don't know why this has always stuck with me, about her husband Billy. She said, It's my job to love Billy, it's God's job to make him good. Are you familiar at all with Abraham and Sarah? Did Abraham ever ask Sarah to do anything crazy? Did he? Sure he did. About leaving Ur of the Chaldees and their nice, rich, palatial place and to walk, make this big trip all the way across the desert and live in a tent for the rest of their life in a barren land with no water and a lot of rocks. How do you think Sarah felt about that? How do you think Sarah felt about having to go into the harem of Abimelech and Pharaoh? And here's the creme de la creme. How do you think... Sarah felt that morning when Abraham woke up and said, Sarah, God's told me to go and kill our son. Uh, I'll be back in about maybe a week. Bye. How do you think she felt about that? And yet the Bible gives no indication that she did anything but submit to what Abraham said. What does the Bible indicate is when she decided to take the reins and do things her own way. you got the whole Hagar story that backfired on him. And that the nation of Israel, even today, through their descendants of that decision, they struggle with. We're going to see next week, as we examine the equally challenging role of the husband, that we have to eventually come to grips against the grain of our natural, sinful, selfish nature. That God has blueprints for your marriage. You can fight it, or you can follow it, and enjoy that God may begin to do in your life what God specializes in doing, miracles. Let's pray. Lord, we all struggle with this passage. Of course, it's easy for me as a man to stand up here and teach this in a sense, but I know many ladies here struggle with the truth of this because our culture mixed with their own Sin nature goes straight against what this passage is teaching. And so I pray specifically for the ladies here who are struggling in a marriage with a husband that is not honoring you, that you might give them the grace not to do it for that husband, but to do it as unto the Lord, and to do it knowing that that attitude mirrors the submission of the Lord Jesus, and that that attitude and that action is one God that you see as precious in your sight. So I pray for that sister today with that struggle that you'd strengthen her in the truth of the word of God and enable her to stand before you regardless of the actions of her husband to stand before you Lord and to hear the words well done you good and faithful servant. We pray in Jesus name. Men, please come next week, your turn.